Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And on this week's episode, we'll be busting open the Muggle mailbag to read your feedback on the Harry Potter TV show and the first several chapters of Prisoner of Azkaban. I did say bust open the mailbag. It was quite full, wasn't it? We've been getting a lot of great feedback from people. Yeah, we've been getting quite a bit of feedback, a lot on the Harry Potter TV show, as you would expect. And then, of course, we started Prisoner of Azkaban a few weeks ago, and we've been already getting feedback on our discussion there. So great voicemails, great emails. And then we have a throwback, of course, at the end of the episode going all the way back to 2006. So hopefully we're we're able to answer that person's question. Excellent. All right. Before that, just a couple quick housekeeping items. First of all, be sure to check out our new bonus MuggleCast installment in which we discussed the new Quidditch game coming out for video game consoles um, at some point. We don't have a release date yet, but they do seem to be testing it. So definitely check that out. And also, a little bit of news outside of uh, MuggleCast specifically, Dan Radcliffe is a dad. Dan Rad Dad. Dan Rad Dad. <laughs> Congratulations, Dan, and his longtime girlfriend, M- and his longtime girlfriend, oh God, and his longtime <laughs> girlfriend, Aaron. Projecting there? <laughs> that, that was a, a Freudian slip. <laughs> I was at a wedding last night, y'all. I am not <laughs> operating just yet. But yeah, congratulations to Dan Radcliffe. Very exciting news. Uh, They've been together for, I think, a good 12 years now. And who knows, maybe the child will star in the Harry Potter TV show. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, speaking of, um, you know, pregnancy and 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 Harry Potter, um, Bonnie Wright actually also announced that she is with child. Uh, She's expecting a child with her partner, Andrew. Uh, And yes, we're very excited. We are very excited. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's it's wonderful to be able to see the actors that we know from these movies start their own family and really just, you know, move that that life path forward. So it's very exciting. All right, let's get to the muggle mail now. And we're going to start today's installment with voicemails. We love hearing from our listeners. We're doing all the talking here on the show. So it's always so refreshing to see our listeners call in and then listen, truly listen to what they have to say. So let's start with this voicemail from Marty. Hi, MuggleCasters. My name is Marty Ryan. I'm from from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. and I've been a huge fan of yours since 2007. Um, My question for you all is if you heard about the news uh, that Chris Columbus wants to do the Cursed Child adaptation, and he's possibly going to be bringing in Steve Clovis, and what your kind of thoughts of, uh, are on this um, in regards to getting all three of um, the main trio back together, because they've said they would never do another Harry Potter movie. But recently they did the Harry Potter reunion. So is there a chance that we're going to have this adaptation, you know, hit the theaters sometime soon? Take care, everybody, and stay healthy. Bye-bye. Aw, you stay healthy, too. Thanks, Marty. Just to provide a little bit of context, Marty sent this in before the Harry Potter TV show was announced, and there were some rumors, and I'm not sure that we ever talked about them, of them adapting Cursed Child for TV. So That is important context. Yeah, thank you. Put that out there. Yeah, that is helpful. um, 
I seem to remember the news that there would have been, again, it was right around the uh, reunion special, uh, as Marty mentioned, that the news started to come out that Chris Columbus, who was getting interviewed mostly about the reunion and the fact that it had been 20 you know, odd years, um, said that he would like to or said that it was a possibility to do it. You know, I, I, I hesitate to say Chris Columbus wants because headlines say Chris Columbus wants. But then when you look at the quote, it's like would be cool or something like that. So I don't know how much traction there would be on a Cursed Child movie. I don't think the writing is there personally that would justify it being a huge success. And writing maybe what tanked the Fantastic Beasts franchise. So maybe people will be cautious. Yeah, I yeah, I would take these rumors with a grain of salt, too. They have been running around for a while. And I know Chris Columbus at one point did say that he would be interested. I just so here here's the thing I will say about a Cursed Child movie potentially happening, even post Harry Potter TV show announcement. Are we really to believe they're totally done with Harry Potter in theatrical form mm. for the next five to ten years. I have to think they're still interested in putting something Harry Potter on the big screen, and maybe the cursed child still is going to be it. I just can't see Warner Brothers being like, you know what, we're not gonna do anything Wizarding World in theaters. Cause that still could be a huge moneymaker for them. Huge, huge, huge. That's a great point. Do we know if they recorded a performance with the original cast? They did. I could see them maybe releasing that as, you know, like one of those um, events that you'll see advertised in movie theaters where they show um, screenings of theatrical performances for a limited window. Well, that would be the best of that would be the best of both worlds there um, because the original cast Hamilton, didn't they during the pandemic or very early on in the pandemic? Well, and that's on Disney Plus now. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the HBO Max or I'm sorry. Max. 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 There's the just perfect Max. opportunity. Just Max. The D, the, the HBO is silent. Yeah. Yeah. So I could see them doing something like that. Maybe they will want to actually adapt it and, and try to do something with their original cast members. But I just also have a hard time seeing Dan, Rupert, and Emma like wanting to come back for it too. All three. I mean, I don't know. Maybe if two of them are in, the third will be like, okay, since since my BFFs are in, I guess I'll do it too. And of course, the pay is going to be amazing. But we've spoken before about how like, it seems like Dan and Emma especially want to move on from Harry Potter and just be identified Rupert as something too. other than Harry Potter. huh? Rupert seems to have pretty much distanced himself as well. I know he was in the cabinet of curiosities recently laura you pointed that out that was a really fun episode by it was guillermo del toro who produced that series right so yeah and and to the point we were just talking about earlier with the news they're both dads dan and and rupert so i would assume they want to spend some time with their kids and and their family and family first right family first dan rad wants to be a rad dad okay (laughs) so let's move on to this voicemail from judy Hey, this is Judy from Santa Monica. I was just thinking, you know, when you said Supernatural, that the new Harry Potter series could do what they did in Supernatural and do a crossover with Scooby-Doo where they walked into a cartoon. And if you haven't watched it, it's well worth the watch. You don't need to watch any other pieces of the season to have fun in that episode. Thanks for all you guys do. Love the show. Bye. I was not aware... That Supernatural did this. No, me neither. I think that could be a lot of fun. Yeah. 
One of the highlights of Deathly Hallows Part 1 is the animation section that is uh, the Deathly Hallows Tale of Three Brothers. Um, and you, we saw how even even on the big screen, um, it was very successful at going between live action just briefly and animation. So I'd love to see them do something like that again for another instance. All right. This next voicemail is from Derek. Hey, MuggleCast. This is Derek. I've been a longtime listener. and it's just crazy that we're finally getting a reboot of Harry Potter already. It's a little crazy. But my big question is, what will happen with the theme parks? Because if they're going to redo the entire story of Harry Potter, are they going to want to update the theme parks to make, like, Hogwarts Castle more resemble the way it does in this new show? I mean, are they going to just, like, hang on to the old designs of Hogwarts, for example? Or are they going to change it and then feel the need later on to change how it looks in the theme parks? I just find that kind of hard to believe because there's just so much to the land of Hogsmeade and, you know, the other areas that they've expanded. So I feel like they would have to change everything unless this new series does use the same sets. So what do you guys think? Thanks. Have a good one. I think they believe they can coexist. The movies, the movie cast, and the TV show, and the TV cast, they can coexist. Maybe they will continue to keep the theme parks as sort of adaptations of the original books and movies and just kind of ignore the TV show and the theme park world. Right. I, I think that, number one, it's going to take time for the TV series to take hold, and we don't know whether or not it's even going to be successful. We obviously hope that it's going to be, but I think where they'll initially start is probably with the merchandise. I don't think they're going to look at making any big wholesale changes to the actual theme park itself because at the end of the day, we're, we have that connection to the films and most fans have that connection to the films at this point. So I feel like any changes to the park are probably years and years down the road and that they will start, you know, selling t-shirts and wands and other things that connect back with the TV series and see how that goes. That's a great point. Uh, and very like from a grounded reality based standpoint, it does make sense. Merch would come first. I think also the success of the theme parks is that it's those sets or those environments realized in three dimensions because they, they weren't before they were just movie sets that were parts apart. Like the park puts it all together in a space and builds that world in a way that I don't even think the TV show necessarily would showing you that, you know, a certain building is connected or near another building. Like it's a totally different experience. What the theme park offers. Yeah. It looks like the movies, but it's even better than the movies in certain places um, because of it being a place that you can go into a park that you can walk around in like you can't on screen. So that's got that going for it as well. I feel like I can see them using the same set designs on a macro level for the show. So the designs for Hogwarts Castle, Hogsmeade, Diagon Alley, I think will probably remain largely the same. They might update them a little bit. There might be some small aesthetic changes. Um, but I think the smartest thing for them to do would be on a macro level to keep things cohesive. Um, between the movies, the show, even Hogwarts Legacy. I mean, if you look at the way Hogwarts Legacy is designed, 
Hogwarts castle is exactly the same as what we get in the movies. Um, and then when we're talking about opportunities for them to kind of expand on the story, that's really their opportunity to start introducing new sets that we haven't seen before. So I think the theme parks will probably be able to stay mostly the same. And let's not forget Fantastic Beast utilized Hogwarts, Hogsmeade, yep. and many of the mm. areas that we're very familiar with. So I don't see the TV series going that far off track to your point, Laura, I think. Aesthetically, they may make some changes, but the main sets will will stay the same. And isn't Hogwarts generally just a like a very small bottle that they use? I I've seen photos from the Leaves in Studio tour, right? Like obvious Oh, it's not small. Oh, it's not small. Okay. Well, it's big, but it's small. <laughs> it's big, but it's small. It's 118th scale, maybe, but it takes up a whole room. Yeah, I have a, I have a picture with it. It's amazing. I think that um, it, it definitely makes sense that they would keep overall. Uh, like Hogwarts won't be bright pink in the TV show. Uh, it's a medieval oh, castle. Man. It's a medieval castle that is a medieval. Until was, season five, then it'll be bright pink. Yeah, right. I guess I guess that um, actually medieval is probably not the correct term if it was made a thousand years ago. Um, but it, it's something like Cogsmeade, quaint British village uh, in the highlands of Scotland or something. You know, like it. there's one way that that looks historically. Um, so they're not going to stray too far. All right. Well, speaking of distance, let's hear this voicemail from Forrest. Hey, y'all. It's Forrest the 10-year-old here. I was wondering why Harry would let Hedwig fly all the way from number four Privet Drive to the borough. Even though Hedwig's been cooped up for a really long time, it's still no excuse to let Hedwig fly that long. It must be a thousand miles at least. Hedwig can't fly that long nonstop, and it's never noted that she got back in the car. So, that being said, is Hedwig just, like, magical, or um, is Harry abusing her? <laughs> <laughs> Let me know what you think. Bye, MuggleCast. Oh, thanks, Forrest. <laughs> Thank you, um, I like, you know what? I like the pause before Forrest was like, or was he abusing her? <laughs> you know what, Forrest? I, I get the sense that you are a fellow animal lover. Um, and I'm right there with you. There are definitely points in the books where it feels like Harry can be kind of neglectful <laughs> at best of Hedwig. Um, and it, it does, I think, raise the question of does Hedwig have some sort of magical ability we have to remember too she knows when harry's birthday is so she goes to his friends to collect birthday presents from them she goes to the dursleys and demands that they send christmas gifts to harry so i think it is implied there's something more to her we just never really find out what that is but i agree with you i think uh i think harry is uh neglectful <laughs> at times of Hedwig's uh, well-being. It's always an important question about whether uh, Harry is treating Hedwig correctly, as Laura said. Um, I did, however, look up the distance between Surrey, uh, where Harry is, where Four Privet Drive is, and uh, the Ottery St. Mary, which is the um, stand-in for Ottery St. Catchpole, which is near where the borough is. And it's only 149 miles drive instead of a thousand so that that makes me feel a little bit better 
Also, it is because the owls are delivering all of the letters and things for the Wizarding World. It's possible they have magical assistance uh, in doing that or are magical themselves. And that's why they were chosen to do that. So it might not be as stressful for any owl to do that in the Wizarding World uh, as it would be for an owl in our world to be doing that and making that and flying that distance. And I guess Hedwig could take some quick breaks. Yeah. <laughs> time for a little break. Ooh. I was going to say in Forest defense, Forest, feel free to correct us if we're wrong. Um, your your accent made it sound like you're from North America somewhere. So when we're thinking about traveling across the country to us, a thousand miles it can very frequently be what it means to travel across the country. So I can see why um, they had that interpretation. Um, but somebody also brought up the point in our discord that owls have to carry letters to and from Hogwarts. And that has to be, I, I don't know if it's a thousand miles, but it's a much longer distance. It could be I would in think. some cases. Yeah. yeah a thousand. Mm. I wonder if there's checkpoints, like a relay race, like certain <laughs> owls get some drop water, off it, have some in Hogsmeade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I really like Forrest's email. He re- he raises a very good point. And I think we should keep an eye on it as we continue to read the series. Yeah. Just how far is Hedwig flying? Yeah. Great point. All right. Let's get to this voicemail from Sierra. Hey, MuggleCast. This is Sierra from Connecticut. I have a crackpot theory about Dementors, so here it is. On the last episode, you guys were talking about the Dementor on the train and um, how it's able to understand language. And it kind of got me thinking forward to, I believe in Half-Blood Prince, there's a line where they talk about the Dementors reproducing. And it got me thinking, like, how does that actually happen? So my theory is that the Dementors are actually people who have previously received the Dementor's kiss and then they become Dementors because otherwise, what do they do with all of those soulless bodies? And also, this would explain why they are sucking out souls and happy memories because they no longer have souls or happy memories, so they want to get those from other people. It also explains how they're able to understand language because they were once human, so they can understand when Lupin says nobody has serious black under their cloaks. It also would explain how they're able to reproduce after Voldemort's rise because they're no longer under the control of the ministry, and therefore they are able to administer the kiss to anyone that they can get their hands on. Um, So that's my crackpot theory. I don't know if anybody has ever brought this up before, um, but what do you guys think? Thanks, Sierra. I really like that. I like it, Are we aware of... Yeah, it makes sense. Because, like she said, what do they do with the bodies? (laughs) Yeah. I don't think anyone's ever brought that up before. I really like it. We're going to upgrade this. It's it's not crackpot. It's It's not crackpot. It's a theory. It's a good theory. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to declare canon, Andrew? I feel like you could do that. (laughs) That has to be a vote amongst the panel. I, I wouldn't just flippantly... Do we have a sound effect for that? Yeah. We haven't used it yet, have we? I declare cannon! <laughs> I think Eric made that one. Maybe? It was good. That's, yeah, good fun. I like that. <laughs> Another echo. You know I love an echo. Oh, yeah. I almost jumped when I started listening to last week's episode. I, I see at least one of our listeners who's listening live on our Patreon right now is uh, 
very impressed by that theory. I don't see anybody poking holes in it. So I, you know, I think it's holding up. The only question would be where then did the first Dementor come from? Mm, what came first? The Dementor or the egg? Or the great person question. whose soul was sucked out? Anyway, thank you for that, Sierra. <laughs> that was great. And to wrap up our voicemails today, we have one here from somebody called Evil Ringo. Hello, this is Evil Ringo. I want to talk to Mr. Andrew. <laughs> Please stop sending fan mail. Peace <laughs> and love. I had not heard that prior to playing that just now. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you snorted. Thank you. That's a throwback to Ron using the phone a few chapters ago in our chapter by chapter series well great thanks again to everybody who called in we love hearing from you you can use our voicemail line which is one nine two zero three muggle one nine two zero three six eight four four five three, or you can record a message using the voice memo app on your phone and then email that file to mugglecast at gmail.com that voicemail from evo ringo just unlocked a, a foreign memory to me didn't we also stop didn't i ask people not to send mail to the p.o box anymore because i couldn't keep on track of it and that was where we brought in ringo and peace and love maybe yes. well but ringo asks in that peace and love thing to stop sending fan mail. yeah yeah well too. it was definitely a reference to the to ringo asking for fan mail but were we did i at one point say no more mail to the p.o box yeah and then <laughs> I think Andrew started making fun of you and saying, yeah, peace and love. Don't send, <laughs> any more mail. Don't send anything. No, it's so funny because it's practically dried up over at the P.O. Box and I've been sad and wondering why. But if we ask people to stop. You traumatized people. That's why. Well, you can start send, uh, sharing the info again and maybe people will send us things. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's very funny. I'll, I'll think about it. Okay. Oh, he'll think about it. <laughs> he doesn't, he's not sure if he wants fan mail yet. Peace and love. Jumping to some emails. We're going to focus on the Harry Potter TV show first. This is from Michael W. Hey, y'all. I love the idea of episode one of the TV show starting a bit before the start of the book series. How cool would it be if the TV show opened with Snape sneaking around and eavesdropping on the prophecy that Trelawney makes about Harry and Voldemort? It would show Voldemort's motive right off the bat and add some depth to Snape. Yeah. I like this a lot. Yeah, I, I actually too. mentioned on Millennial when Eric and I joined you and Laura and Pam earlier this week, I think we talked a little bit about how they could do this in a way that wouldn't give too much away. Mm. So I don't know that you need to necessarily hear the full prophecy because we know, I think Laura, you brought this up, Snape doesn't overhear the entire prophecy. And we don't necessarily need to reveal that it's Snape. It could just be a back shot of the head, very dark, so this would be very cool. I know Andrew stepped away uh, to make some coffee, but uh, just the show opening with the prophecy. And I wish Andrew was here to do his Trelawney impression. But uh... well, that's kind of the creepy thing for me is I would I would not want the show to open up on Trelawney's prophecy because there's no way to do that without really squigging me out. <laughs> like no, like a creepy voice and a prophecy. Like that's not how you start a Harry Potter series. Come on. You got to start it with murder of two parents and their kid. <laughs> I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, my argument is unraveling. But yeah, uh, I was like, this, the series doesn't exactly start out warm and fuzzy. But I will say, like, 
they made it they made the prophecy a little extra creepy than I think it had to be um in the movie. Yeah. I, I don't think we need a, a Trelawney-esque performance, or I should say uh an Emma Thompson-esque performance in terms of just her going into a trance-like state. I think there's maybe another way to make it come across that isn't so creepy to your point, Eric. Yeah. But isn't that book canon that Trelawney is in somewhat of a trance when she's actually making a prophecy? Yes, but mm. does it have to be so creepy? <laughs> I mean, it's a prophecy saying, hey, these two unborn babies, um, when they get here, they're going to be targets for a mass murderer uh-huh. to come and kill them and their parents. Uh-huh. Pretty creepy. I, I don't think there's a way to make that not creepy. Well, I think if the plan is to differentiate the TV show from the films, the first two films in particular were very whimsical. They were very much an introduction into the wizarding world. If this is a different type of spin on things, then opening up with a creepy prophecy could actually be kind of fun and maybe skewed toward a little bit more of an adult audience than the movies initially were. Andrew, right. when you were away, we were talking about how um, maybe you could do a Trelawney impression, but I don't know that you're in the right state to do that right now. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches. There's a creepy noise coming from the Keurig right now, too. I you probably I didn't hear, hear it, it, but it, oh, you that heard it? Okay. Very well. That really added to the really it added did, to it. It did. WB is going to be like, wow, that's a great effect. In the question of uh, what, how it could be different, I actually looked it up in uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, the book, and it's just described as a loud, harsh voice. Realistically, um, it also says Trelawney's eyes roll back, which is not great. Um, but as far as characteristic of the voice, just loud and harsh are the only descriptors on page 324. Harsh could be well, creepy. Do you, even, yeah. do you even need to see Trelawney, though? It could just be Snape listening at the door. Yeah, like right. a keyhole. Yeah, that'd be cool. And yeah. then a goat walks by and, and Aberforth, all of a sudden, Aberforth shows up. <laughs> it would be cool to have Aberforth be the first person you see uh, in, in the TV series because uh, Dumbledore is the first person you see what in the, uh, in the movie. That would be very funny. The next email comes from Liz. Uh, the subject is unpopular opinion. Hi. So with the announcement of the HBO Max HP series, I, along with the rest of the fandom, was thinking, OK, but like, what about a Marauders spinoff instead? But after further consideration, while a Marauders spinoff seems dreamy, I've come to the conclusion that there is no possible way to create a widely loved and accepted Marauders show. If it is even possible, I think there is too much lore. The fanon is too extensive. And there are too many routes a Marauders spinoff could go in. I would literally lay down my life for the chance to see the Marauders story in live action. But no Regulus, count me out. Portray James as an unredeemable asshole? I will turn it off and literally never turn on my TV again. While remaking the original story may be considered boring or lacking in creativity, a Marauders spinoff could just never be good enough. Wow. Okay. Liz uh, signed it, your fellow Scorpio Slytherin. Yeah, I mean, I will say the the fanon that Liz is, return, is referring to is very robust. And I could see it being difficult for people to accept 
an interpretation of the Marauders story that doesn't match sort of the popular fan created interpretations because we just don't get that much about them in the books. Um, you would almost have to have like fan consultants working on this to make sure that the story went in the right direction. And I don't know that Warner Brothers, Max, everyone on this, I don't know that they're really looking to hire fan consultants, which is too bad. Laura, can I ask though, what are some of the things in the fanon that people would want to see brought to life in a Marauder story? A big one is um, slash relationships. So a really, really popular pairing, especially in fan fiction of the Marauders, is like Sirius and Remus having a relationship at some point. That is probably one of the bigger ones. I know that there are uh, Marauders fans who are probably more equipped to speak to it than I am, but I know that it would be a big thing people would love to see. Well, going back to the episode where we all watched fan videos uh, and reviewed yeah. it, there were some uh, like really, really fleshed out relations between uh, Lily Potter and Alice Longbottom uh, in the one. Mm-hmm. There are others that have really tried to show Peter Pettigrew's um, sort of descent into betrayal. Um, and, you know, they, they've done it in really like nuanced ways, partly because there was no official creation uh, creation in that space has really allowed the fans to kind of work it out themselves. And so I think that any TV series that tried to adapt the Marauders would steamroll because what is Warner Brothers going to defer to intricate plot lines that some fan came up with? No, they're just going to do their thing, even though the fan stuff, it's it's right to point out that we should appreciate the stuff that's out there by, that was created by the fans. That yeah, makes sense. If you want an example of a really popular Marauders era fanfic, we talked about this when we did our fanfic episode a while back, um, but I would recommend checking out All the Young Dudes by Ms. Kingbean89 over on Archive of Our Own. This is a very long and extremely popular Marauders fanfic, so that, if you don't already have insight into what fans would like to see, this fanfiction will give you some of that. I think too, even exploring the whole process of transformation that James and Sirius and Peter go through for a friend in in Lupin. The whole reason why they decide to become Animagi is because one of their friends is going through a really difficult time in his life and an affliction that he cannot get rid of in being a werewolf. So, you know, there's you know looking at a theme maybe of allyship there in the fact that those three are willing to transform themselves into animals in order to be this cohesive unit of friends. Yeah. They would definitely have to expand on the back and forth bullying between James and Snape too. And I think that goes to the point that Liz is talking about in terms of portraying James as unredeemable. Um, I think the show would have to go there. So James Potter fans probably wouldn't love it. It's a fair point. (laughs) All right, moving on to our next email. This one comes from Jane and Jane says, hi, everyone. 
currently listening to your most recent podcast about the TV adaption. I haven't finished the episode, so hopefully I've not repeated something that's going to be said, but I wanted to share a thought. Micah asked if it may be too soon to make this adaptation due to the iconic characters of this film. I think if done properly, they may be able to be in the TV show as a nod to the original film character, but in a role that's new. For example, in the later books, there could be a flashback to the original Order of the Phoenix, and James and Oliver Phelps could play Gideon and Fabian, (laughs) who were Molly Weasley's brothers that had passed during the First War and inspired uh, Fred and George's names. Or Daniel Radcliffe is now closer to the age that James Potter would have been when he actually died than the actor they used in the movies. So maybe have him play the limited scenes with the 23 or 24, I think, year old James Potter and have someone who looks similar play the teen version for the Marauder stuff or have Bonnie play a younger Molly Weasley. Basically, I'm saying the old cast could come back as a nod while playing roles that haven't actually been transitioned over to film or TV yet. Yeah, I guess we wouldn't be surprised if we saw one or two of these types of cameos. I think if you do it with too many actors, it's going to start just becoming distracting because they have to be Mm -hmm. careful about that, too. They don't want these surprises, which I presume they would be, um, to be to take you out of the moment of the storytelling. Yeah. I will say the one that seems to be the most requested from fans is Tom Felton coming back to play Lucius, which would be very cool. And I could see him doing that. Yeah, I I agree. I I think the more that you pepper in the prior cast and they're not playing the same character that they did in the previous film, because so much of what we see in today's tv or movies is these actors or actresses coming back after 10 20 30 years to reprise a role but the story is different in this case the story is the same so i think having some of those same actors show up it's just not going to land the same way i agree andrew that we'll probably see a few cameos along the way but i don't think that they should go that route because I feel like you need the TV series to really stand on its own. Yeah. Agreed. All right. This next email comes from Annette. Hi, MuggleCast. I loved episode 606 where you reacted to the upcoming HP reboot series. I really want to see this story told in a diverse and brave way as I believe this is the only way reboot will work. With that in mind, I would love to see non-binary actor Mason Alexander Park play a role on the show. For example, it would be great to see them as an Ilvermorny educated professor at Hogwarts. So that's fun. They previously played Desire on Sandman, a performance that blew me away, and I think they would be a great addition to the cast. All the best from Annette the Hufflepuff. I love the idea about how we can be diverse both in the casting, but in terms of the kinds of characters that are introduced um, in this show that maybe aren't necessarily in the books, right? I love the idea of there being an Ilvermorny professor visiting at Hogwarts. When you think about the way that, um, you know, international school networks like we know exist in the wizarding world function, you would have visiting professors from other schools. We see that in Hogwarts Legacy too. Um, so this would be a great tie-in. I love the idea. I think worth mentioning, we did an entire episode on fantasy casting 
the Harry Potter TV show before it was even announced, episode 483, which is very much before it was announced. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, everyone we recommended uh, on that episode for casting has died of old age uh, since that was a joke. But oh, it's I was time. like, wait, is it her <laughs> or that got really grim? <laughs> All the children are now in college that we recommend. <laughs> there you go. Uh, this next email comes from Debbie, who says, hey, y'all, my two cents on the new HBO Max series, please not the showrunner from Game of Thrones. I recently listened to an in-depth interview with Alexander Siddig, great guy, who played Doran Martell for a couple of seasons. He said that the showrunners were micromanagers and also not very creative. They were good as long as they had George R.R. Martin's source material to guide them. After they strayed from the books, show quality steadily plummeted. Directors had no say at all. Yeah, okay. So that's some person. We're we're talking about David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. Is that? Yeah. I don't necessarily see them playing in the Harry Potter world, but you never know. Yeah, there's not enough violence. But the point about the showrunners losing the original source work is a good one because, like Debbie said, um, they relied on George R. R. Martin's source material to guide them after they strayed from the book, show quality steadily plummeted. That's why I think Warner Brothers is very excited about doing this TV show. It's because mm. they have the framework complete already. They don't need to stray too far off the beaten path. We hope they stray a little bit, but they've got they've got what they need to create a mm. successful series start to finish. That's a good point. It is a fair point and and I feel like once we started to get into late season 3, early season 4 of Game of Thrones was when things started to get a little herky-jerky, uh very faithful adaptation in season 1. You could probably extend that a bit to season two. But in fairness to the showrunners, George R. R. Martin's work is massive. We're not talking about a couple hundred page books like with Sorcerer's Stone or Chamber of Secrets. So worth keeping in mind there. And I think it's also fair to mention that A Song of Ice and Fire was not complete. It still isn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're in 2023. And I think the last book came out in when Deathly Hallows Part 2 came out. Uh, So that was 2011. So it's been 12 years since we've had a book in that series. Our next email comes from Ben, who says, Hey, MuggleCast, I loved hearing your thoughts on the upcoming TV series. And I agree, there are so many opportunities. Really like your thoughts that the series needs to start with something new as a hook. Something I think they could do to expand the beginning of the story is include pre-Hogwarts stories for the whole trio. Mm. I really like this. I think that it'd be awesome to not only see Harry's introduction to the wizarding world, but also see Hermione learning she's a witch and maybe Ron Summer finally getting his Hogwarts letter. I think even the rest of the season could be nicely filled out with one-off subplots on side characters, classes, or magical experiences at Hogwarts. The first and second movies are already so faithful that it will be tough to differentiate a show otherwise. What other ideas do you think can be explored in the first and second seasons? Yeah, with ideas like this, adapting book one could be longer than six episodes, which is what I think I was kind of initially predicting. Um, You could even do flashbacks to Hermione uh, learning that she was a witch midway through the season. You know, let's say when Harry, Ron and Hermione finally become friends, you can flash back then. Um, It doesn't have to be right at the start of the series. So 
we've talked about the missing 24 hours and what Dumbledore was up to, but what about Hagrid's journey, both um, with Sirius Black and the, the Potters, like picking Harry up, but Hagrid's journey getting back to Harry uh, and telling him he's a wizard for the first time. What did that look like? Um, as we, I think Hagrid talks about it very briefly in the book about he's allowed to do some magic, but let's see it. Let's watch Hagrid try and reunite with this 11 year old. We could also potentially see some interactions between Dumbledore and Nicholas Flamel, right? Explaining, giving a little more context into why the stone is coming to Hogwarts, um, allowing us to see a version of Flamel that isn't decrepit, <laughs> hopefully. Nicholas Flamel, a non-fragile character, uh, gets to... In- he should be vibrant and strong and not uh, able to be broken apart by the tip of a finger but how old he was and acted was so funny oh my god it was such a dumb choice (laughs) he's gonna he's gonna show up on tv and like shake dumbledore's hand and dumbledore's gonna wince and be like ah you've been working out haven't you oh that'd be good it's gonna be like oh yeah carrot juice (laughs) (laughs) the other thing i was gonna add to that was we could also see a little bit of the backstory in terms of Quirrell and how he came across Voldemort and how he was able to have Voldemort latched onto the back of his head. Maybe we spend more time with Quirrell throughout the year and see the effect that Voldemort has on him. I think that could be really interesting. Again, like these are the types of things that I hope that those that are working on this show are thinking about because to the point that was raised here by Ben, it the movies were fairly faithful adaptations in the first two uh, books. So I think doing a little bit more, creating a little bit more of that world would definitely be what lures in us potentially as fans. All right. Our next email comes from James who says, Hey y'all. First off, let me say that I went to journalism school. So being able to break the news about the TV show in the Facebook group was one of the more thrilling moments of my life. Nice work, James. (laughs) Well done. Um, As far as the show itself goes, I'm genuinely very conflicted. I've heard the argument that they're playing it too safe and just redoing a story that's already been done. And I agree with that to an extent. It definitely would have been cool to see the founders or the marauders. Redoing the original story will also create a weird dynamic where there will be two competing canonical versions of the story on screen. They'll face awkward pressures between creating their own story and emulating the original movies, etc. Remaking the original series is absolutely going to cause some issues. On the other hand, though, these same problems can also turn out to be positives. What was the main complaint about the Fantastic Beasts movies? Quote, I have no idea who these people are or what's happening. (laughs) I feel like that's mostly a Crimes of Grindelwald gripe. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly adapting the original story avoids that. It also avoids the issue that the new Star Wars movies have run into where the story gets so strange that fans of the originals find it hard to also love the new ones. And... Most importantly, while it's true that the original stories have already been done on screen, there are so, so many moments we haven't seen yet that should absolutely be incredible to see. Peeves, the have a biscuit potter moment, the Quidditch cup final, spew, etc. Bottom line, 
I think it's genuinely complicated and remaking the originals will both bring up awkward issues and give us hours of absolutely incredible new Potter narrative to watch. And obviously, I absolutely can't wait to see what they come up with. I agree with this take. Yeah, the two adaptations, I hadn't really thought too much about it before, but it is a little concerning about how to think about them in your brain once you consume both of them in full. I guess, luckily, since the TV show is going to be a slow drip, that might help us deal with it. And then in terms of getting some things that we haven't before, Quidditch Cup Final, Have a Biscuit Potter, it's going to be very exciting to get some of these lines in particular. Um, You know, the Dumbledore said calmly part. I mean, that's going to be a big moment for the internet when that happens. <laughs> They'd be insane not to take another shot at that and do it right. No, what if what if they still have him go like full Michael Gambon, <laughs> but then have Madame Maxine or somebody step in and be like, Albus, calm down. Be calm, be calm man. <laughs> I would love it if they did little tongue in cheek nods here and there like that. That would be very fun. All right. Well, that concludes our TV coverage for now. And I know Micah mentioned this a few minutes ago, but just wanted to circle back real quick. Micah and Eric were on Millennial, the podcast that Laura and I do. And we talked about not just the Harry Potter TV show, but the Twilight TV show that apparently is in the works as well. And we spoke about TV adaptations in general and when it's uh, too soon to reboot. So you can check out Millennial in your favorite podcast app or just go to millennialshow.com and you can find subscribe links there. We had a really fun time doing that crossover of sorts. We did. And we were pretty candid. Oh, I went off. I lost my mind a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So let's move on to some Prisoner of Azkaban related emails. This is from Calvin. I've been listening to your recent read-through of POA, and I didn't know if anyone has mentioned or discussed that everyone in the beginning of the book refers to Dementors as Azkaban guards until we meet one. Then I do not believe anyone uses the phrase Azkaban guard again in the entire series. Clearly, it's used as a bit of a plot device to hide what they are, but still funny to me how it's handled. Thanks, love your all's show. Keep up the great content. Thanks, Calvin. That is a good point. I hadn't um, thought about that before. And I totally agree. It's plot work. (laughs) Yeah. Nice little nuance that they caught there. Mm -hmm. The next email comes from Peggy Ann. Hey, y'all. Regarding your ponderings of whether the school reached out to Molly and Arthur about Ginny being taken down to the chamber, it wouldn't surprise me if Hogwarts didn't tell them and they only learned about it from Percy's owl. My own elementary school was bad at informing parents about certain things. <laughs> when I okay, it's, I'm, I'm, there's another paragraph. I'm very excited to read this. <laughs> uh, when I was in the third grade, apparently something nasty was written about me in the girls' bathroom. Based on everyone's reactions, it seemed pretty bad. The teachers insisted my classmates, including my best friend, not tell me what was written, and I wasn't allowed to use the bathroom in the third grade hallway until a custodian cleaned it. And my mom only found out when I told her about it after school. Honestly, it still bothers me that they didn't alert my mom. For my mom, it still enrages her whenever the topic is brought up, lol. I get it, though. I'm her child, and I was being bullied, and the school was covering it up. I'm loving these chapters with you. Peggy Ann, this is an amazing story that I think does shine some light onto whether it was realistic um, for Hogwarts. Thank you for sharing that awful moment. 
Yeah, uh, this was a little bit of a Chamber of Secrets uh, hangover email, but uh, I think we did talk about Ginny again when um, they were in Egypt and whether or not it would have made sense for her to go into certain chambers uh, with her family. It might be a little bit uh, triggering for her after what happened the previous year, but uh, I think there's a little bit of a difference between Peggy's story and what happened to Ginny. So I think the fact that... uh, Jenny's life was actually in danger, um, would warrant an immediate call to Arthur and Molly. Didn't seem like Peggy was in mortal danger um, based on what was written right, on yeah, the- Right, yeah, when it becomes uh, a liability <laughs> issue for the school not to tell the parents, then the school will tell the parents. Um, this seems like the school determined it was not an issue if they just clean it up. You know what this- does remind me of though it's a little bit of a prisoner of azkaban tie-in and again the context is different but we were wondering earlier on in our chapter by chapter discussions why the minister why dumbledore why mcgonagall why no one wants to tell harry what's actually going on and we see here that Based on the reactions of all the other adults in the school, whatever it was was really bad, but nobody wanted to tell Peggy Ann what was actually going on. The reality of it is some of her peers probably saw what was written, and she just as likely could have found out that way through someone else. So if we want to find a little bit of a book tie-in here, that's one that I see. I like it. And uh, yeah, sorry, Peggy, that that happened. I'm yeah, curious terrible. to know if you ever found out what it was that was written. That's terrible. Anyway, uh, moving on, we got this next email from Emma, who says, "Hey y'all, did I get that right?" Yes, yes you, you did. <laughs> In today's episode, you mentioned that London's double-decker buses are a tourist attraction. I understand that the red buses are of some interest to sightseers, but surely having a second deck isn't so unremarkable or remarkable. Double-decker buses are very common throughout the rest of the UK. Do they really not have them elsewhere? (laughs) Wouldn't you run out of seats all the time? (laughs) (laughs) Funny you say that. Perhaps I'm misunderstanding and you were merely drawing a connection between London's red buses with two decks and the purple night bus with three. Thoroughly vexed, Emma. Well, let's unvex you because in the US, there are no double or triple decker buses and we are blown away when we go over there and see these things. It is a novelty. It really is. Let me tell you how much America hates public... America hates public transportation. We do. Period. Any attempt to make a sense-making improvement to public transit is immediately defunded before it gets off the the bill book. Um, That said, there are double-decker buses. Uh, Downtown Chicago has a few, but they're the touristy buses that they right. make a big point yeah. of they make a big point of having the upper deck that's open air for the summer when they want to showcase like local touristy buildings that kind of a thing like it exists but only in a very like specific context and not ever for from privately owned companies it's not like yes. actual public transportation like it is over exactly. over there exactly yeah. mm-hmm. exactly same in new york we have double decker buses, buses but they're all tourist buses yeah, like the regular metro buses don't have this. 
Um, the only they actually make them longer. I don't know if there's the same for you oh. in Atlanta. They put like the extension on the back of the yeah. bus, so they add additional seats. So we we don't go up. We just make traffic more miserable. <laughs> yep. We make traffic worse. The only time I've ever been on a double decker bus here in the U.S., with the exception of those like touristy buses y'all are talking about, was it a party um, bus? No, it was a party <laughs> bus. It was a mega bus. Have y'all ever mm-hmm, taken them? Mm-hmm. They're uh, oh, I heard about them. Yeah, privately owned company here in the U.S. that you know, kind of like Greyhound, you can travel city to city. They have double decker buses, but again, it, it is very much a novelty. Probably seems super backwards to Emma. <laughs> can you believe we buy little models of the double decker buses and and bring them back here as tourists because we're so infatuated? I'm pretty sure I bought one of those once. <laughs> and build them out of Legos. Yeah, right. And they have that just that iconic red color. We're impressed. We're impressed. All right. Our next email comes from Chelsea, who says, Hi, Mugglecasters. I just wanted to call out Chapter 4 of Prisoner of Azkaban, one of my favorite moments in my favorite Harry Potter book. I love reading about Harry relaxing and having fun in Diagon Alley, eating ice creams, and just enjoying himself. It's one of the last joyful and truly carefree moments for him before his struggles and traumas start to carry through from year to year. As an adult looking back over the series, I have such appreciation for these happy moments where Harry is able to enjoy making some childhood memories for the first and last time. Finally, with some freedom from the Dursleys, but before his descent into PTSD and some deep mental health struggles, I just love imagining the magic and whimsy he must have felt on those good days. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, Chelsea. It's a nice respite (laughs) from the rest of the darkness. Yeah, and this is why we like going through the books again to uh, re-experience little moments like these. So thanks for shouting that out. This next email is from Jerry. When the sneakoscope was under discussion, I think I remember the first time we ever see slash hear it go off is when the trio are in their compartment on the Hogwarts Express. I believe it was Scabbers' presence that made it go off in Egypt and again in the compartment, and that on a careful reread, it isn't really activated by minor things like mischief, but by real evil, as in Peter Pettigrew. As for why it isn't reacting to Horcrux area at this point in time, Voldemort is at his weakest ever. Harry and his mother's love protection killed off the possessed quarrel, leaving a very weak Voldemort to flee back to Albania at the end of book one. And at the end of book two, Harry, using the Basilisk Fang, destroyed the Diary Horcrux, which may well have contained the biggest portion of Voldemort's soul, since it was the first he had ever made from the murder, murder of Myrtle. Murder of Myrtle. Murder of Myrtle. <laughs> Say that full eight times fast. In later books, as Voldemort becomes stronger in various ways, Harry's Horcrux becomes more active. But I believe in book three, the Horcrux inside of Harry is very inactive because Voldemort is very weak. Also, remember, this is the only book in which Lord Voldemort doesn't make some sort of personal appearance, but my remembrance is that Harry's sneakoscope mainly goes off for Peter slash Scabbers and perhaps for Dementors, but not for lesser sneaks, and thus is a very good product. I'll be watching it closely in this chapter-by-chapter reread to see if my memory is correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good You're call You're right, out. Jerry. It is, I think, exclusively when Scabbers is in the mix that the sneakoscope goes off. I really like Jerry's explanation in terms of why the Horcrux specifically wouldn't, at this particular moment, trigger the sneakoscope to go off. 
And not something I had thought of looking at just how weak Voldemort is at this particular time in the story. I like the idea that the Horcrux is almost dormant at this point. So just not detectable. Even even if not, this is a household, like a regular consumer product. The sneakoscope is something you'd find in stores. It's not going to be able to detect something as subtle as a fragment of soul, but it can detect someone who will betray you in the room with you. Um, I just think it's like the difference between uh, a, like a store-bought breathalyzer test and a blood test. It's not going to tell you the same results with the same accuracy, I don't think. Well, to wrap up our emails for today, thought we would dig real deep uh, into the MuggleCast mailbag. And this one comes from November of 2006. So we are uh, a little less than 17 years ago uh, at this point, if my math is correct. It is from Caitlin. 14 at the time, now would be in her early 30s. Caitlin has waited more than her entire life's time to get, to hear back from us. I hope we yes. do this justice. From uh, Andover, Maryland. And the subject was, will they work together? And she says, hey, muggle casters, I was wondering what you thought about the rumor going around that Harry and Draco were going to work together to vanquish Voldemort. <laughs> well, I myself think that it's possible. There are many who not who do not agree with me and think that Draco has gone bad for good. Mm. I just want to know what you think. Pickles, Caitlin, P.S. Jamie, you are so hot <laughs> and by far my favorite muggle caster. That's hot with two T's. Yeah. Jamie has fans in Andover, Massachusetts. Very nice. I guarantee you that is not the only email uh, <laughs> that has that PS. Oh, no. <laughs> but how about, but hot with two T's? Hot with two T's? Uh, there might be one with like 14 T's. <laughs> uh, we'll have to uh, pass this along to Jamie. And maybe Caitlin is still listening. We should reply to the email and be like, hey, we finally addressed your email, by the way. Caitlin probably mm-hmm. stopped listening when Jamie stopped coming to the podcast. <laughs> probably. <laughs> he was on what? Uh, I don't even know how long Recently, ago it was. Recently, two, three years ago, I think. 600, yeah. 400, some, one of those. It feels like yesterday. Yeah, this is great because it reminds me that the way that this did manif- uh, manifest in the final book is when uh, Draco is put to the test of identifying Harry. Uh, who is disguised and really just kind of giving him away. And Draco struggles and chooses not to. Not as exciting as the let's all plan together to defeat Voldemort, but it is uh, just a more nuanced take on the fact that Dumbledore, or sorry, Draco is not gone bad for good. So I think it's safe to say, Caitlin, you were onto something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Agreed. And uh, let's not forget it, you could look at it from the perspective of Harry and Narcissa working together because without Narcissa, who knows what would have happened at the end of the battle of Hogwarts. But uh, yes, as legalized Gillyweed says in the discord, this is a typical 2006 muggle cast email. (laughs) There's a lot of fun ones, honestly, going back and and reading through. I didn't uh, have to uh, look too far to to pull this one. He's actually spent so much time recently talking about the TV show. There was one about Creature and Dobby 
And somebody was asking the question whether or not they thought they were going to cut Dobby from the final film because he hadn't appeared since Chamber of Secrets and would have made more sense to kill Creature instead because Creature ends up aligning himself with Harry in Deathly Hallows. So that was kind of a a cool fan theory. I wouldn't have been surprised knowing how concerned they always were about budget. Yeah. but, Two house elves in this economy? <laughs> in the same scene? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to appear on a future Muggle Mail episode, you can email MuggleCasts at gmail.com or you can use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. And again, to send a voice message, just record it using the voice memo app on your phone and then email us that file. Or you can use our phone number, which is one nine two zero three muggle that's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three, and we will resume chapter by chapter next week with uh, chapter seven, the Bogart in the wardrobe from Prisoner of Azkaban. And now it's time for Quizage. Last week's question was: What form does Parvati Patil's Bogart take? And as always, Quizage is a first and foremost quiz of the books so book canon says that Parvati Patil's Bogart was a bloodstained bandaged mummy keyword was mummy that was the one we were looking for congratulations to folks that submitted including Bernard Eno Bob deep cover or Forrest the 10 year old hey buddy ministry failed mummy nanny puff the hufflepuff smushed golden snidget snape's best hat the gum in peeves nose the man who told his Harry about the World Cup accidentally, and how is Andrew a Trelawney apologist when he killed her off in the Battle of Hogwarts? Reference episode 512. Oh, I've turned a new leaf. Okay, good answer. (laughs) Next week's question. What animal is responsible for the death of Lavender Brown's rabbit? Oh, very sad occurrence, but it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Submit your answer to us on the Quizich form, mugglecast.com slash Quizich, or go to Mugglecast's website and click on Quizich from the main nav. Don't forget, we couldn't do this without your support, so we would love if you visited patreon.com slash mugglecast and pledged today. You can pledge anywhere between 2 to $10 per month, and depending on how much you pledge, you receive different benefits, and different benefits up for grabs include a physical gift every year, access to the Mugglecast Collectors Club, access to our recording studio. We typically record on Saturday mornings. You get bonus MuggleCast installments twice a month and much more. So check it out at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. And if you're an Apple Podcast user, for just $2.99 a month, you can receive ad-free and early access to MuggleCast right within the Apple Podcasts app. Patreon does offer more benefits, but we know some people might prefer supporting us via Apple. You might be more comfortable with that. So just tap into the show and you'll see that subscribe button. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Our username is MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And then last but not least, make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss a new episode and leave us a five-star review if they allow you to. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with Chapter by Chapter next week. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Peace and love. (laughs) Andrew. (laughs) 